We've got 25 minutes to um, pitch around on any of the issues, and we've got Alistair here and Fred who contributed during the term. Any others? Yeah, okay, so you know, raise any of the issues that you like to raise, so we would not necessarily be able to answer any of them. David? No, it's just that um, I was thinking of, say, 10 years ago, you happened to be reading one of the Athorian legends, you know, as mm -hmm. part of your homework, and you came across the passage where it describes, this was written as a biography of King Arthur, uh, how he taken the sword out of the stone, and Merlin had said so-and-so. I can sort of imagine you then saying, has the actual words that Merlin said to Arthur as he took the sword from the stone, you would have attributed that as a sort of historical biography, possibly to the retelling of the story. And yet, the way you've explained it is that you read this book as a, like the Arthurian legend. It just happened. You just have to read the book, and it said, "I am God," and Jesus said, "I am." And yet, you seem to have accepted that as being what said. Now, what's the difference between that and reading somewhere in the biography of Arthur mm. that Merlin said, "You are the future king." Great. Thanks for the question. I actually loved Arthurian legend. So yes, that, that, right. that scenario you've painted happened several times. And a history of it as well. Um, yeah, indeed. Um, well, such as it is. Some people um, think it is. I think, I think the thing I... The, I apologise if I don't communicate this clearly enough. It's not that when I read that, I sort of no. fell on my face and went, this is the truth. Yeah. Um, it was more that I was gripped um, by having I'm read sorry. something that couldn't that couldn't quite make sense to me at the time, and I needed to find out more about. Secondly, uh, that evening, as I say, I read through John's Gospel a couple of times. I may only have been 14 and a half, but I did know the difference between myth and history. Myths don't tie themselves to historical events. Myths don't uh, record some of the, frankly, what you would call incidental details that John's Gospel does. Um, and it doesn't have the same kind of chronological awareness. And I know this because I've, I happen to have read quite a few minutes. As I say, I've read English at yes. university. From a, from a literary point of view, um, uh, well, you quote C.S. Lewis, I think he's really helpful on this. He, yeah. he makes the point that, that if the, the four gospel writers are kind of making it up, they're doing something that isn't going to... writing a biography. But if the person who wrote me Arthurian legends was also believing that he was writing historical facts as well, to some extent, and there are in fact historical things in the Arthurian legends which, mm. I, I which, which reference things that actually may have happened. Yeah, I haven't come here to, to defend the, the no. veracity of the Arthurian myth, so we won't really talk about that, no, but, but, but actually I think when we, when we look at what's going on with the four gospel writers, I, I do think C.S. Lewis is compelling on this, he says either they were trying to set down truth as they, as they considered it to be, or they'd come up with the novel 1600 years too early, which I, you know, so, so, so that was that was the impression biography. I got first reading it. Yeah, the novel or biography. I mean, novel because there were historical biographies at that time of other well-known historical and figures. They just, and they just don't read oh. like anything the gospel. There are miracles in them. In these other biographies, yes. Hmm. But that's not what I mean. I, I think even if we were to grant, I, I don't quite know which. Well, tell me which biographies do you mean? Well, there's one which is describes you know the the emperor Vespasian um, doing the People know this miracles, yes, yeah. and things like this. And I could, I could find you the sources I'm if you sure. want me to. But I don't want to go into well, it. But well, there are the really there really historical biographies around that. at that time. I thought it was very interesting here the things that really stopped you in your tracks. Uh, and the thing that stopped me in my tracks was reading Jesus said, Come to me, you who are weary and laden, and I'll give you rest. For I am humble 
that's impossible, Sally. You can't, that, that just doesn't work. You know, it is so wacky and bizarre that the reason that you should come to me is because I'm the, took me a long time, but I'll work out where you go with that. Mm. Um, and, and that is a historical fact. I mean, those words are there. So they're either fiction, well, who would invent a fiction like that? I mean, it's just quite an extraordinary thing to say. And yet, of course, the character of Christ, all the way through the Gospels, is like that. Mm. Um, Can I just come back on that? Because you quoted historical facts. Okay. So historically, you said you read John, and John said, uh, at the end, the crucifixion, Jesus said, it is finished. Now, if you read Mark, he says, God, why have you forsaken me? So, which of these two historical facts are we to believe are the last words of Jesus? Well, so I don't think I, I don't think I can tell you which were his chronologically very, very last words. I think I think all of those. Well, but why does it matter what his very well, it very last words? You know, in a way, because no, we're talking no, about reality. Why, why does that matter? Is there a fact? Nothing. Nothing. No. Hang on. Nothing. God, you have forsaken me. Yeah. Is very different. I'm, saying, I'm forsaken. You have left me. Then it is finished. The whole tone of it is very different. Un unless you've gotten the tone wrong, unless the act of being forsaken is the reason why it was finished, which actually seems to be the conclusion the earliest Christians came to. I think to build an argument on that is building it on inferences you're drawing out that very few others have, actually. I'd like to, to add two points about that. On, on the question of um, the precise chronology uh, differing, as it does differ um, between various Gospel accounts, for example, um, I've just um, created a YouTube playlist on my YouTube channel, if you find it on YouTube, on contradictions in, in, in the Gospels, and particularly some very useful recent work being done by um, the New Testament scholar Michael Kona, who's got various videos up on YouTube, researching about the nature of ancient biography mm -hmm. and ancient uh, literature and, and showing that the New Testament Gospel writers are using uh, the same literary techniques as a tool in ancient textbooks of writing a biography, including techniques of, of reordering material, yes. of, uh, of uh, telescoping things, etc. etc. He goes through the various things. Yeah. So within the literary genre of historical biography at the time, it was, it was perfectly acceptable to reorder things to make, to make points and so on. Um, but also on that spe specific issue, I, I would point to a reading of Psalm 22, from which I think Jesus is quoting when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the opening lines of Psalm 22, which is of, which also read Psalm 22 and see the context in the New Testament of what's going on theologically, and Psalm 22 uh, ends with, it is done. So I, I think what Jesus is, is, is doing as, as a suffering Jew on the cross, he is quoting from Psalm 22. Quote the whole of that is a very long song. Well, I, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a little bit pushed it. I mean, uh, well, uh, you know, it's probably in too much agony to go through the whole thing, but you know, it's, it's also it's also an acceptable Jew, Jewish way of, of referring and quoting to scripture to quote the beginning of something to refer to the whole the whole of it as well. But Luke wasn't an eyewitness of these things. No, he had seen many accounts of what had happened, and he selected the things that he'd put into his account. Mark, on the other hand, seems to have followed Peter around and listened to the things that he had recorded and majored on. Um, so they've got completely different sources, um, and neither of them were there at the time, um, but they were reliable sources, Mark recording um, Peter and, and 
Luke clearly checking his sources very carefully, as far as we can understand, was a very uh, But isn't that perfectly story. reasonable? I mean, you know, we won the Davis Cup today, you read the papers tomorrow, but you won't see the same thing in all the reports, yeah. because people will write it to the way they want it, to the audience yes. they want to receive it. But it's happened. Yeah, and that's, say, that's happened all through um, history. Doesn't say um, Murray sort of took off and flew through the air or something, does it? I mean, we're not talking, we're talking about reasonable facts, which most people can agree on. When you're talking about somebody rising from the dead, etc., and turning into wine, you're on a different book. Oh, but, you, but you weren't. You were talking about, did, did he say a particular sentence yeah. in which chronological order? And, and you're talking about the order. And so, for instance, if, if the newspaper tomorrow said Murray was crying, and then said Murray was overjoyed, would you say, they're two very different things? How on earth could you have that? And the correct response would be, it's possible to be crying with joy. Yeah. And just as actually, I think Psalm 22 makes it very clear, it's very much possible for Jesus, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, to be stepping into that messianic position which he then considers himself to fulfil in his death. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I don't see what the problem is. Well, the thing is, you know, most scholars believe that John is very, is quite late from what I've read, and possibly written, let's say somebody was, I don't know, in the Second World War, and this guy was reported to be around in the Second World War in Nazi Germany, and was going around, you know, curing people of illnesses and disease, and, and, and eventually got killed by the Nazis, and he was seen alive and rose from the dead. In, in the last, say, decade, you know, this year, somebody has written the biography of this chap, gained from sources which he had somehow arranged, somehow or other. Don't forget, in those days, paper was very valuable. People didn't write down stuff so much. So we're talking about something which happened in Nazi Germany in the First Second World War is now being reported, and that can be about the age gap between the, between the so-called saying to Jesus, it is done, and the time it was actually written down. A, a couple of things on that. Firstly, that gap is probably not quite right. If scholars it's go from 1918, let's, let's, let's say the coronation of Elizabeth II. Let's say about that time. Yeah. Secondly, though, the, the real problem here is, is the assumption that what would happen in that is that the events occur, nothing else goes on, and then someone writes the biography. And well, I think that's, that's, that's a bit... No, no, the stories that have been... Such, people have been talking about this crazy guy in Germany who was healing people and then was seen alive. These stories would have been circulating around, and eventually it got written down. Other people are Today, trying to get in on the discussion. Right? That's what I'm trying to say. It's the age difference in time. Paul, Paul, do you want to come to this point? You... Yeah, uh, I watched the DVD with Walford, I think his name is, and um, he, he didn't really make very strong arguments, but one thing he said was, uh, it's a bit like God has knocked on the door and run away. So he did something 2,000 years ago, and we haven't heard anything since. Um, and I just wondered about, you know, how is God speaking and how is God acting, you know, in modern times? Mm -hmm. Well, had this lovely illustration that the, 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 the message of God is that all, all inquiries are referred to the Son. Oh, God, which is clearly, in every respect, a crucial issue of what God is saying. He's saying in the life of Jesus, and as you read that life, um, it impacts us as it impacted me and impacted me. You know, um, so that's primarily what he has got to say at any point. He's got to say it in his son. Do you want to comment on that, Peter? Um, no, I was just going to um, mention the, con the contentious issues of, con of contemporary miracles. 
Um, and just refer you to Craig Keener's two-volume recent work uh, documenting contemporary miracles. And I would say that it, it seems that when you look at this previous century, you're seeing the most explosive growth around the world of the Christian church. Uh, you're seeing the most remarkable growth. That isn't maybe happening in this island the same way, but that shouldn't let us um, ignore the fact that it's happening elsewhere. Um, I, I don't think, therefore, we kind of uncritically accept that. What I think you, you'd find there is plenty of people who would tell you that they are experiencing um, the, the gospel in its fullness today. Frankly, I'd tell you that as well. I think what I'd say to that person is that the claim of the Christian faith is not just that in the historical Jesus God has made himself known, but that through his Holy Spirit, the, the, the words of Jesus continue to speak powerfully to people today, continue to provide hope, continue to provide challenge as they did to me. Um, that's something I know from experience. Um, so. Question of that. Um, to what extent do you think that the idea or the relevance uh, that the idea of apocalypse or the end of this world has in the Bible? Because I think Jesus says something like, he says, um, uh, some of you will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God. Um, and I think a lot of the early Christians were following him under the assumption that the end of the world was imminent and he was about to um, return. How do you think that affects Christianity today? Yeah. Well, so that's, what, that's what perspective an intriguing question. Particularly, particularly if you look in the book of, um, in the to Thessalonians, from Paul, I think you find him there struggling with, with Christians who do have that view uh, of a more imminent return, and he's, he's reminding them uh, that the orthodoxy of the of the church is that that is not the case um, in, in the letter to, to, to Thessalonians um, and we have for example Jesus' explicitly recorded remarks that nobody knows when the end is going to be uh, not even the sun um, he says in, interestingly um, so although I think historically you can show that there certainly were some Christians who had this sort of imminent second coming kind of view it's something that within the New Testament it's, itself it is, is being um, uh, preached against uh, by Paul and by certain of the recording of sayings of Jesus in the Gospels and, and so on. Actually, also, theologically, and I think I'm with N.T. Wright on this one, a lot of that discourse we were quoting about um, you won't die until the, um, you see the kingdom of God coming in glory and so on, a lot of that discourse has been interpreted by some modern Christians as being about the second, the second coming, the apocalypse and so on, and actually, it's, it's not about that. It's about the, um, the AD 70 destruction of Jerusalem, the getting rid of the, of the temple uh, system, uh, of showing that, that Judaism uh, as a religious system is now surpassed in the, in the New Covenant and so on. And Jesus is talking more about displaying God's glory in the New Covenant uh, and the coming destruction of Jerusalem than he's talking about the second coming. So you've got a number of things that all seem to be fed in together and concertinaed. And so you've got the coming of the Holy Spirit, which clearly was the birth of the church. Mm. Um, and suddenly Jesus was, became a living reality in all their lives. And then, and I think we, looking back on it, uh, don't appreciate just what a cataclysmic event for Judaism the destruction of the temple was. I mean, the temple was mm. where it was all at. 
uh, and the sacrifice and the, the, the gathering. And you, you get a flavour of this in the book of Acts where uh, Luke records the, the huge numbers of races of people who were attending the Passover events. And there were Parthians and Ethiopians and there were, they came from Rome and you know, massive gathering from the, the whole dispersion of the Jewish people which was you know, over the sort of the whole known world. They were required to come in for, for the pilgrimage <coughs> and they did. And suddenly it's all over. It's all over. Chapter the show is finished. And that for the Jews you know, talk about the moon turning the blood and the, the stars falling from heaven. Uh, their world had caved in at that point. Uh, and it took a massive rethink to think, how, where do we go on from here? And of course, you know, the, there was a massive movement of the Jews, uh, including many of the priests, we're told, to follow Christ. So, you know, the whole Christian movement was a Jewish movement. Um, Completed so for probably 12 years. Thank you. Um, in, in this series, we've been looking at the evidence um, uh, for Jesus being God's son, and that's and you know what you, what we've seen is there's you know quite significant evidence. Why why do you think? Um, the, the, the movement of the Muslim faith is so strong. What evidence are they basing their faith on? Because in this world today, we've got two huge faiths, Christianity and Islam. Some of you may know of Gary Habermas, who's a, a noted scholar. He did a tour in this country, and I actually organised a debate in Birmingham with a leading Muslim. And um, you know, I thought this would be very interesting to dialogue. And Habermas started and presented the case from history. And this other man stood up, he didn't reply to anything that he'd said. He just says, well, we believe this, and we believe that, and we are told this. It was entirely fideistic. It, was, it only depended on what they believed as a group. But there was no attempt on that occasion for them to give any arguments I don't know you've got any experience. I don't know. Were you here for the week when Fred was doing the, the talk about the Islamic view of their scriptures? Um, I think he um, so, yes. uh, made, made a very good point in that, that week. You might like, like to go back on the, on the podcast, those of you who are listening to this podcast, and, and listen to Fred Garlick's talk from this term um, about how um, the Muslims would argue that the, the, the Christian scriptures must be corrupted because they contradict things that are in the Quran and the Quran must be true. Um, but they don't argue for the truth of, of what's in the Quran historically. Also, there's a, a historically knowable miracle that testifies to it or anything like that in the way that Christian apologetics has, has traditionally done from the beginning. They just take the, the fideistic premise, the Quran is the word of God. If the Bible contradicts that, that must be, you deduce that that must be because Christians have corrupted their scriptures, regardless of what the actual empirical evidence about the scriptural testimony and textual criticism and so on, they you know, don't go into, into that, it's just deduced from first principles. Yeah, I think it's worth thinking, what, what is there that's attractive about Islam? Because clearly I think there is much. Um, I think, I, if I've got to be honest, I, I'd say Islam seems to me to be the most religious religion. 
in that it's the most bald statement of, do this and you will live. Um, that, that it's very clear that there are pillars. You, you, you make the, the fasts you have to, you make the pilgrimages you have to, you give away what you have to. You hold to this um, very clearly articulated tenet. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. Um, I, I think that speaks to something about human nature which craves rules, craves those boundaries, craves those regulations. I think if you were to see a life that was in disarray and then consider the changes that could come in if someone were to, to latch onto all that kind of discipline. I think what Christians would say is that actually um, rules are a terrible way to get satisfaction, that it never really takes you there, um, that you're always left worrying. I think one of the remarks by Christopher Hitchens I've enjoyed sharing this week with some Muslim students was, he talks about how the, the, the essence of a dictatorship is not in its regularity but in its, in its unpredictability saying that people in dictatorship must never be able to relax, always worrying if they've done enough. And I think the challenge I'd make to, to my Muslim friends is, are you not in that position? Never able to relax, always worrying if you've done enough. Always wondering whether your, your rule-keeping has met the standards of Allah, and if he's as transcendent as my Muslim friends would say, as the Quran would say, how is that possible? Um, but, but I think it's worth asking the question, what is attractive about that? For my Muslim friends, I think uh, they, they would tell you that if you read the Quran in Arabic, you'd be having a a religious experience. A lot of my, my friends who speak Arabic don't find that to be the case, but that's what they'd say. Um, I personally <coughs> loved the fact that when I started exploring Jesus, he pointed me to a real thing that happened and said, make your mind up on the basis of that. You can read a very fun, very funny actually, writing by John of Damascus, an early Syriac father, in which Islam is really arising and, and he's engaging with that. And because he doesn't have kind of centuries of respect to sort of give to this discussion. He sort of says, it's remarkable. You want evidence when I tell you I'll sell you a cow. You want to see the cow before you buy it. And yet you believe something like this without any testimony. What's going on? Um, so that seems to have been part of the character of that discussion through, through time. A dreadful story in the Times today of a woman who is planning to blow herself up and she says, that's the price I must pay for eternity. Oh. Englishman. Um, I find the concept of hell difficult to reconcile with Jesus um, because so I've heard that uh, in the Old Testament the idea of hell doesn't get elaborated on a lot someone might argue that it's not even there at all but it is in the New Testament and Jesus also says that most people don't make it to the kingdom of God um, in part that they go to hell instead do you think that still stands? Uh, how, high, how high is the bar, do you think? <laughs> it, it, so high that it can't be reached. So high that what I require is someone to um, give me acceptance with God. Uh, like I was trying to say, that the bar is beyond my reaching. Which is why, apart from Jesus, were I the most upstanding moral person you'd ever met, which I'm not, um, I still wouldn't make it really very big question, the, the question of hell, and I don't want to speak about it in a flippant way, um, I just want to say that. It seems to me that Jesus is the one who's most vocal about hell. So when you say it's hard to square Jesus with hell, I know what you mean. Um, hell seems so inflexible, Jesus seems so pliant, and how do they work together? But we need to remember it's in his mouth, it's on his lips that we find uh, most of this discussion. I think we're led um, down the garden path when we read certain descriptions of hell, and imagine a sort of Dantean pitchforks plus, plus brimstone experience. Um, the, the essence of hell, which seems to me most 
solemn and, and terrifying is, is the idea of God's absence. And I think that uh, if you read Luke 16, you find this rich man in Lazarus. I would go there and read it because that account for me really seems to be the clearest the New Testament speaks of what, what that separation, that absence looks like. And what you find that's horrifying in there is the man who is in hell, this rich man, never asks to leave. Um, because, of course, that, that's hell. Um, I was speaking to someone this week who said, well, do you know what, I really just don't want there to be a God. And I don't want to believe in him if he is there. Um, something that Christopher Hitchens said, I think he said that as well, he said it was like a celestial North Korea. Mm. Um, and, and I can see how, were anyone other than God to be in a position to see all you do and judge all you do, yeah. it would be that. But his problem was, he, he hadn't let Jesus speak louder than Kim Jong-il. No. If Jesus is the one who has that position, who sees and who judges, then I know he'll be fair, then I know it's not North Korea, I know, I know it'll be heaven in its fullness. But, but to me, that seems to be part of, part of this language of hell, separation from God, such that in hell, people get not just what they deserve, but also what they've asked for. Um, and I say that with a really heavy heart. I really mean that. I don't want anyone to be there, uh, much less any of you in this room. But that seems to be what the state of affairs is there. Well, I think we should always keep in mind what Jesus said about you know, faith like a grain of mustard seed. He's not asking for massive faith from us. Um, you know, he's not asking us to fulfil all sorts of doctrinal examinations or, or uh, uh, martyr our lives. Or, but it is the simplest childlike trust yeah. that is required. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the most graphic phrases about hell, as it strikes me, is the wailing and gnashing of teeth, yeah. as the old authorised version had it. Profound regret that people will arise at the end of their life. They've had that opportunity and they have completely perverted it. Um. I think it's back to something Nicholas was saying in his talk about the, the nature of sin. And it, it's really, the heart of it is about relationship and God giving us that, that freedom to, to relate to him or, or not to. Uh, to choose to relate to him by the essence and the very nature of who God is and who we are, is to say, I'm not going to have myself in the middle of myself, as it were. I'm going to put, put you first. Um, I want to, ch- to change for you, but I'm not changing in order to meet your standard of, as sort of the you know, entrance exam to heaven or hell kind of thing. It, it's about, do I want to relate to my creator? If I do, the only way in which that's possible is to, is to say, well, I, I can't earn this on myself. I need to accept, receive this. Thank you very much. And that means accepting you as you are and, and me as I am as a creature. And, it, and it, is, it is only those, I think it's very clear in the Bible, who, who refuse that offer, who knowingly refuse the offer that God in love is holding out to everyone. Nobody goes to hell for being ignorant, uh, just not happening to have heard about Jesus, or being born at the wrong time, or uh, you know being 98% towards the 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 pass mark, but not quite getting there because it's not working on that kind of standard. Uh, And and, you know Christians have different views of of the the nature, the duration, etc. of hell. But the, the key thing is, do you want 
to be relating in a loving, forgiving relationship with your creator, the greatest possible, most beautiful, maximally beautiful being that there is forever? Or do you want to do this to him? You know, and, and quote C.S. Lewis, we love quoting C.S. Lewis, um, his phrase, he says that there, there, there are only, in the end, two sorts of people. Um, uh, those who say to God, your will be done. And what he wants is, is love and relationship and, you know, only good. But the other sort of person is those to whom, in the end, God reluctantly, regretfully says, your will be done. Um, and back to relationally, if, we, if we're free to accept God, we're, we're free to reject him. Don't look at it, you know, you can look at that from our side, look at it from God's side. He's created us in order to love us, to genuinely have a loving relationship with us. He has to give us the possibility of rejecting him. Christianity believes in a God who is willing to make himself vulnerable in relationship and love to the creatures that he creates for the end of, of being in relationship with him. And yet on the, on the cross, Jesus displays, whatever else is going on there, displays God's, the lengths and the vulnerability to which God is prepared to go in, 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 in showing us how to relate to him and, and the nature of his love towards us. I've, I've always thought that, for those who are very disconcerted by the idea of hell, and I think that's most people when you think about it, that the beautiful thing Jesus does is on his death, in his death, on the cross, he's saying, over my dead body, you would go there over my dead body, and there's nothing I wouldn't do to keep you from going there, up to and including giving my life. There's so many things I don't understand about this subject, um, and so many things the Bible doesn't tell us in explicit terms, and I think that's worth noting. I think sometimes we, we prey on moments of silence in Scripture and chuck in what our imaginations give. But I think the reason for Scripture's silence is that it wants us to know the things we need to know uh, instead of all the things we might want to. I well, I think we're going to have to blow the whistle on that because <laughs> doesn't time fly when you're enjoying yourselves. But we haven't yet found up next time's programme, so if there are subjects you'd like us to tackle, um, and I think hell will be a good one. Um, Let's stick it on the agenda for the next time. You know, Christians aren't people who've got everything sort of tied it up and all sorted. We just think Jesus has. Uh, and we come with that perspective. So thank you very much for supporting the term and uh, for making these discussion times good. And for all those of you who spoke during the term, thank you very much. There is some fresh coffee there and the tea is lukewarm. <laughs> the cakes have got to go. We don't want to, yeah, the cakes have got to go, so they're up on the house. <laughs> Thank you very much.